You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Bill Powers, your host. If you would like to engage the show or the topics that I cover, feel free to email me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. Well, the gold bugs have been uh, very excited over the last few weeks as a lot of these stocks have doubled off their bottoms and it's formed sort of a V-shaped bottom off that extreme sell-off that we saw in mid-March. But maybe you're not aware that the uranium stocks, many of them have also had a V-shaped bottom off of their mid-March sell-off. You see stocks that have doubled, gone up 100% in the last month. And we've seen something that we haven't seen in many years in the uranium market. That is the spot price above 30. As I speak today, it's above $31 a pound. And as I look at this market uh, from afar, I ask myself, is this the real thing? Is this the commencement, the start of the uranium bull market that many have expected based on the long-term supply and demand fundamentals? Or is this another head fake? So here with me today to answer that question is Daniel Major. He's the chief executive officer of Goviex. He has over 30 years experience in the mining industry. Daniel, welcome back to the show. And so is this the head fake or a real thing? We'll do hindsight on this question, won't we? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I, 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 if you actually look at where we've come from, I mean, you know, we got stuck in this sort of 24 to 26, but we were down at $16 a pound, uh, you know, two or three years ago when we hit the bottom. So I, you know, I think what we're seeing now is clearly a reaction to what is already an improving market. Um, you know, we already had strong growth coming out there on the demand side. You know, we're looking at about 2% growth um, on the demand side, driven predominantly, obviously, by, by China, India, and uh, Asia. Um, you've got, had that political change where people now realize that, you know, reactors actually have to stay as part of the, the clean energy. So the US, uh, France, etc., making sure that the, the reactors stay in play. And on the other, on the supply side, you'd already had the supply side reactions coming through, you know, from a number of mines. And then obviously the last ones we'd seen pre-COVID-19 being Kazatomprom and Cameco reacting to the oversupply in the market that was there. So, you know, I think the, the big issue that, you know, has caught most of us out in this process had been, you know, what Cameco and Kazatomprom were trying to do was clear out the inventory and figure out what was what was going on there. And so the market was tightening. Uh, volume, certainly when I was talking to traders, they were, you know, saying, hey, 18 months ago, if I wanted to find a million pounds to trade, it was not a problem. You know, now it was a bit pre, you know, uh, first quarter of this year, it was, it's getting tougher to put packages together um, to make the material needed. I think what you've now seen um, is as a result of the, the sharp reaction that's had to be made as a result of, of COVID-19 and the, the way that people are having to react to protect their labor force, then obviously the actions by Kazatomprom, by Cameco, uh, by the Namibian mining operators have exacerbated that tightness that was gradually building in this market. Um so I think, you know, this this is not just a head shake. I think what you're seeing is a, a very clear response to 
a market that was getting tighter and tighter anyway, uh, and that people have realized actually they need material. One of the things I've commented on before, previously is that, you know, this year was always going to be, I was expecting the price to go up. But when you looked at the, the offtake contracts that were out there, most offtakers were quite well covered for 2020 anyway. Um, and therefore, it was as we went out of this year into next, it was going to get harder and harder for people who wanted contract. Um, I was reading an article the other day, and there was an anecdotal comment from a utility basically saying that the suppliers are becoming way more savvy now on contracts and that, that nobody wants to sign them. So their expectation was that price would have to go up going forward. So I think what you've seen here is obviously that response to the supply side constraint. People worried now. I think what it's also done is highlight what we all understand about our industry, that there actually aren't that many producers in it. Uh, and that if you lose, you know, two or three of them for a short, even for a short period of time, it puts the whole industry at risk. I was observing this and I was thinking, looking at it as a game of poker. And I was thinking, uh, you know, did Kazetta Prom when they took their supply offline for a matter of months, at least right now. And then also Cameco taking off uh, Cigar Lake and MacArthur River, taking these offline. Is that almost calling the bluff of the utilities that haven't been willing to give them the price that they wanted per pound of uranium? I wouldn't like to pretend I knew what their total rationale was, but I, I think in the in the case of both of them, they will have put their employee safety first, um, and that's the way they will have looked at it. Um, you know, when you looked at where um, Cameco were working their way into this process, they were trying to keep their operations going, and then realized that actually it was. It was unattainable um, for the way that they wanted to operate, and it was actually safer, therefore, to to take it down. Um, and because they're not the they're not the only operator that we're seeing doing this. I mean, you've seen it across gold, you've seen it particularly across things like copper, where mines are just being shut down all around the world in multiple commodities. Um, you know, uh, and so from that point of view. I think that the driving force with all this management has been their requirement to to look after their labor force. Um, obviously, you know, someone like Cameco, given their action they took at MacArthur, would understand that there's another impact that comes through here. Um, but they already had a strategy of where they were trying to go. And they, you know, their view, the market was already starting to tighten up. Um you know, in the cases of the Namibian operations, uh, both Rossing and, and Husa, they were forcibly told they was, had to close. Uh, the Namibian government demanded that all operations close. And they've seen the same in South Africa with the um, South African gold producers that produce uranium being told to close. Could what we see happening right now essentially be uh, referred to as a short squeeze within the market? Would that be accurate? The question I, that you have really on that is, is it just a short-term squeeze in per se? We'll just you know, go back to where we were. Um, or is this really a, a, a plateau shift uh, and we've moved up a level? What was clear out there was that inventory levels were dropping around the place in various metals forms, uh, whether it was EUP or, or UF6. The prices of those commodities uh, forms had already been rising. 
Uh, a lot of that driven by the fact that particularly the U.S. utilities had been picking up material in a, a more advanced stage because of the uncertainty that had been cr created by Section 232 of the Nuclear Fuel Working Group. Um, and therefore, by picking up material in an advanced stage, they were shortening their pipeline. Um, so, you know, they could then make a decision within six months rather than a two-year problem um, to go through. So, and, and we've seen that because the EU pre price has been going up, the US sex price has been going up. You've uh, that's been obviously going to be slightly more exacerbated by Cameco's decision to shut down their US six operations. So again, that will continue to tighten the market there. And and part of the problem at the beginning of this year was that a lot of the utilities were getting their material from those sources rather than the U three hundred eight source. And it was only as things started really tightening up at the beginning of this year, you know, guys started to look for material. Um, and and Cameco, you know, have also, you know, we know they they need to buy material. This part of what you're seeing here is people like Cameco being forced to come to buy even more metal than they needed to do. Previously, they would have been on the side watching to take the offer that they could see rather than bidding for material because, um, you know, they don't want to drive the price either. You know, they, they want the price to go up naturally uh, and they want to create the scenario that enables it to go up. But it isn't in Cameco's interest to be, you know, forcing it off a cliff because, you know, as you point out now with the, with the short squeeze, these things will respond back once you take away the pressure. You know, it, your hand stops hurting when you turn off the Bunsen burner. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what Cameco wants to do is make sure there's a nice steady fire there that's going to keep going for a very long time. Um, so, I, you know, I think from, from, from that point of view, no, it isn't. I, I think what you're seeing now is, again, inventory being pulled in. Utilities were consuming their inventory, while, particularly in the North American market, while they tried to figure out what was happening regarding 232 and the working group. Um, and as those inventories come down, obviously, they start to get to a point where guys say, well, I've actually got to reload my inventories. Uh, I, I'm getting tight. And therefore, I think what you're seeing here is part of that scenario coming through. Guys are going, well, I actually better start getting some material in. Um, and, and start reloading. How many million pounds of uranium uh, will we see for demand in 2020? And could you share that with us in relation to what above ground supplies still are there that could potentially supply the market? Because there is going to be a pr production deficit this year for sure. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, you're still looking at about 150 million pounds still required. I mean, if you look at the inventory levels, the Chinese obviously have a big inventory. I mean, what was the last number I saw? About 350 million pounds. But that is strategic. It's not going anywhere. You know, and I think the, the nuclear fuel work, the um, WNA report for last year made that very, did a very good job at analyzing the inventory positions and made it clear really that one of the problems the industry has, there was, when you looked at inventories, it was actually, you know, most of it was locked up. Um, and they worked out there was something like 15 million pounds of material that they could see as being really fungible and coming to the market and the rest of it pretty well stayed where it was. The European, as I say, European and US utilities were at some point over, you know, well over two years of inventory, but that number's coming back down under the two year level um, as well. So, you know, we've seen this already in the secondary supply side, um, a tightening up predominantly as well because of, of particular things like enrichment, for example, where, you know, there's been capacity squeeze by you know various shutdowns coming through 
And you're seeing that the whole way through that pipeline is there's been a, a capacity squeeze all the way through to the underfeeding side as well, with the Russians indicating that most of their underfed material now stays internally because they need it for their their industry build out. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're really it's a case of guys looking at where they are contractually. OK, and guys now starting the utilities now starting to say, well, actually, you know, the price has moved. I've got to come and get it. Um, I've got to meet my contracts. The other thing that clearly was happening at the beginning of the year, and that's why you know BHP's quite an interesting one with Olympic Dam. If it was to go, they are still a big supplier to the spot market. The Kazakhs had removed themselves, um, according to the comments they've made from the spot market. Uh, they don't sell there anymore, um, and so that market was getting tighter. Uh, and at the end of the day, the spot market does drive the long-term price. I mean, it's, it's a function of of it um, because guys have got, you know, utility um, guys have got a choice. You can buy spot material um, and predict where it'll be in the future, promise to pay a future price based on your leasing rates, based on storage rates, et cetera. And that is the forward curve that they're seeing out there. So, you know, when we were down at 24, you know, it made no logical sense to be buying long-term material at long-term prices really for them because, it was cheaper to basically pay someone to store it and, 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 and pay the cost of money. Um, one thing that has been interesting um, is that as a result of all the cuts we've seen um, on interest rates, the the leasing rates have gone up um, because obviously everybody's got a slightly worse credit rating because everybody's in a mess. So we've seen those spreads go from 250 basis points to over 400 basis points. So the cost of leasing material has, has got more expensive. So that has tended to steepen up the curve a touch as well. But, you know, you've already got a price now that's actually at 31 is long is higher than the term contract price that UXC reports. And what's the a average annual cost of production for when you look at all uranium miners globally? I'm going to I can't tell you the exact answer. If you look at the curve, obviously, you're going to start with the first guys in it, which are going to be the, the Kazakhs who are sort of sub $15 to $20. Um, actually, Red Cloud put an interesting presentation out on their recent webinar that they did where they had a slide and showed that if you take the existing projects and you to get 90% of the material that needs to be mined, you have to get up to $60 cash cost to get all that material to cover the line. Which I thought was an interesting an interesting chart. Um, most of that material, you're sitting with a big batch, sort of at twenty dollars, which is the Kazakh material, and then you've got a very large batch at about thirty to forty dollars. So, what price uranium would we need to see to really incentivize and uh, you know see the bankers fund uranium development projects? Obviously, it depends who they are and where they are. Um, in our particular case, the strategy we've taken is kind of been led by what Cameco have been saying, um, which is that, you know, to bring MacArthur River back, they would like to see something with a very high four or a five on it. Um, and therefore, I basically said, you know, for Maduela, we need to see uh, um, something that, you know, a mine that works for under $50. Um, if you look at a lot of the projects that were shut down um, around the world, they were shut down with uranium higher than $50. Um, certainly a lot of the North American ISR projects, uh, we've looked at a couple ourselves. You know, they need $60 to really justify restarting them and getting them going. Um, 
so you know a, a, a price north of $50 is needed to get most things up and going. When you look at what we're looking at right now and the potential upcycle that we're facing here, what what are some of the main differences than 2007? Because a lot of uranium speculators look back and see the parabolic move of 2007 and could overlay that upon what we're seeing here. Some are more conservative. I've seen some that say they think it's going to outdo 2007. Back then we had you know, the speculators, I understand, drive the price up. But I don't believe we had royalty companies and things like that in the uranium space. So what are some of the key differences that you see? I think the key difference, well, one, you were you were really just balancing your market. You had a market that was trying, you had, where supply uh, was driven by a limited number of players, really, at the time, uh, way less than there are now. Um, you had additional material that was being fed gradually into the market by the government, uh, particularly the U.S. government, uh, which was meeting the needs for the reactors. Um, and, you know, there was not a lot of inventory around at the time either. So you were coming into this scenario, and you saw that in things like copper at the same time as well, where supplier inventories were non-existent. And you, so therefore, when you had a shock, that you had then with Cigar Lake disappearing, it was a major impact because there was nothing out there else to feed the market. Um, and so you suddenly had this rush up on price um, as everybody panicked where they were actually going to get their material. Um, you had a strong build out on reactors going on at the time. Um, the problem we've had um, in this time around is that we have had to deal with the inventory question more um, than we had before. That inventory was allowed to just keep on building out there. Uh, and the inventories are in a different place. I mean, if you look back in 2007, most of those inventories were held by the US and Russian governments. That's where they're sitting. Since then, because of the, the, the way they've been sold and the, the extra material that's been coming out, it's the utilities and you know and a change of where our inventory is sitting that has made things different um and you know we've had an industry that's been in oversupply which wasn't the case back then um we've had to remove that oversupply but that oversupply created as inventory oversupply and what we've been seeing for the last few years is a gradual unwinding of that inventory oversupply and back to our, you know, earlier discussion on this, you know, I think that's what is different now. Why, why what we're seeing with COVID nineteen is not just uh, a head shake, that it's, you know, guys starting to look at it and going, hmm, I, you know, I can't afford to have these guys starting to not be in the market, uh, um, and therefore I have a risk of supply. I need more material. Uh, I can't, you know, stand on the side. Okay. So it's that initial pushing of the boulder, so to speak, overcoming that price inertia <laughs> to get the spot price moving. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're continuing to expand the, uh, you know, the deficit for this year. This expands that deficit this year that was predicting that most people are predicting by having material shut down. I mean, I saw um, one of the commentators putting the number that's disappearing because of COVID-19 between somewhere between seven and 15 million pounds. Well, that's a big chunk of annual production that's being taken out of an industry that was already going into deficit. 
uh, and we're predicted to be in deficit next year. I mean, next year you, you lose the Common Act mine in, in Niger. So, you know, you've expanding that deficit problem. And so where do you meet the material from? You just take it out of inventory, whatever. It, so we are pulling this inventory level down. And as I said earlier, you know, that fungible inventory is actually not that big. Most people have got, there are inventories out there, but most people are holding inventory because they need it for strategic reasons. So there's not a lot of spare you know, loose inventory just floating around that nobody really wants. Daniel, you often point out that in the last uranium cycle, some of the best performers were the development companies that were on the verge of coming into production. You have three development um, projects in Mali, Niger, and Zambia. Are you still on track to kind of capitalize on this expected bull cycle we're entering with your company? Yeah, I believe we are. Um, I mean, the one thing we've never done is stop moving forward. Um, so, you know, at Madawella, we had, you know, back in 2018, end of 2018, we made it very clear we're going to start our feasibility study. We felt the fundamentals to the market were, were moving forward. Last year, we, made, we, we, we revised the way we were working to a degree to make that a, actually a pre-feasibility study first and then move that into a feasibility study. The rationale for that change was that the changes we were seeing to our model was so great in the way that we were changing process design, the way we were able to now bring in contract miners, uh, the way we were looking at restructuring the project to make it bankable, um, that we decided that we really needed to put a PFS out first so that we could continue our conversations with potential off-takers and with uh, potential lenders. Uh, and then we would just continue down that path. Now, you know that is that work is still ongoing. Um, we did press release the other day that we've got a bit of a, we've been caught out slightly with the lockup in South Africa where we'd just done a whole bunch of test work and uh, unfortunately the lockup meant the material was in the wrong building uh, for it to be assayed um, so the test work's been done we just can't get the assays done uh, until we can move it from one building to another across Johannesburg but what we're doing with that is actually just making sure that the project keeps going forward for, so we're not sitting on our hands we already had provisional test work previously on the same subject that gave us an answer. And so we have assumed those numbers uh, and our project is still going full on. And we will just adjust when those test work results come back. So we had predicted May. Uh, we, we probably are, are looking at as now a June finish, but you know that will, lot will depend on how the lockup continues to affect us. But the, really, the message is, no, GovX has, hasn't stopped. It, it keeps moving forward on its project. Um, and it, it's all about becoming making our project bankable in, in all facets. It's not just about you know making it have a nice IRR or NPV uh, at, at a uranium price. It's about having something that I can take to the banks and saying, can you finance this? Does this meet all the criteria regarding resource tails, payback periods, technical risks, all of those things. So we're, we're looking at the full suite of everything that goes in. So a lot of the changes on the project, for example, are taking out technical risk in the project that we had in from technologies. Uh, we're going to a contract mining operation, which obviously does have an impact on our operating costs, but we make a big saving on our capital costs. But you know what you're now what you're paying to move rock now. Uh, you're not making your own assumptions. So again, it changes the risk balance of, of what you're trying to do. So no, we, you know, we have that mining permit fully in play. We've got a great relationship with our government in Niger. 
Uh, they're very keen for Maduela to get going. Obviously, the Comanac mine next door is due to close in March of next year. And our target would, you know, we'd like to work with the government on that to make sure that we're at a construction phase by March. Uh, obviously, that's driven by the price of uranium and our ability to access the financing by then. But, you know, we try and work with the government as well to to support Niger. On the financing note, you kind of had the un, were a victim of the unfortunate situation about a month ago when all equities and the, I've seen it in gold miners, too, that had to cancel or restructure their financings. And you had to cancel the second tranche of your private placement kind of at the bottom. Where are you at with financing for the rest of this year now that things have picked up? Well, I mean, the first point I'd make on, on that financing, we were actually doing it at a premium to the market, mm-hmm. <laughs> a fairly substantial premium to the market as well. Um, and we were offering a one-year uh, one-year lockup on at the stock as well. So it wasn't normally the four-month lockup. We'd extend it to a one-year. So it was a five-year sweetener on the warrant, right? You had the warrant, yes. But you were still having to pay a premium to the market and um, a fairly substantial one, and you had the lockup. So it, it was, there were many facets of that were good. Uh, we got the first tra- half of the tranche, the first tranche away. That was great. You know... With everything going all over the place, we have focused on doing what we do, which is get that PFS out. Um, so we're not standing still. We're still moving forward. All we've done is just cut costs everywhere else to make sure that we can get through into the second half of this year, um, which is by, by when we hope to have had that PFS out uh, with the existing financing. Um, and everything else, we just hunker down. We've cut all travel. Um, everybody's do, you know cutting budgets to the minimum. Um, to make sure that we can make the funds last as long as possible. We want to see the share price go up. And so as we conclude here, you want to just recap for us the, the key catalyst that investors should look for in Goviex uh, for the remainder of 2020? Well, obviously, you know, your key thing, keep watching this market. I, I think we, we have seen a real step change. I think the, the production cuts uh, that have been announced are going to continue for a while. Uh, the market has responded, and that just shows you how tight this market is getting. In the case of, of, of Goviex, we've always said that when the market recovers, we will be getting ready to go into that construction phase. Um, so, you know, look for us in the middle of the year to get that PFS out. You know, we're hoping that we can show a PFS that's way better than the last one. Um, and with that, we can then continue to accelerate the work we've been doing on financing and offtake um, on the whole benefit of, you know, our target is always to get Maduela into production. And, you know, our, our key benefit is that permit. You've been listening to Daniel Major. He's the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Goviex Uranium. Daniel, thanks for coming on the show and providing us this update. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances 
uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns, as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.